And today the message will be, Are You Paralyzed by Grace? And we'll be reading primarily from Matthew chapter 11 and talking about the different aspects of grace uh, that Jesus was talking about. Before we get into anything else, let's just take a moment to pray. Father God, this morning we're going to be challenging many people's thoughts and attitudes about this thing called grace. And I ask, Father, that you would open up our hearts to hear what the Spirit would say to us as individuals and to us as a church family this morning. As we get into the different aspects of grace and how its power can affect not only us in forgiveness of our sins, but how we live our lives. Father God, do your work this morning through the reading of your word. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now last week we discovered that God's grace means more than just forgiveness. Grace isn't just God wiping away the slate of all of our past sins, but grace can teach us a new way to live. Last week we learned that often we have a very limited view of God's grace, and I want to explore that a little bit more today in this message. In many churches and denominations, grace has been limited to only forgiveness of our sins. It's been captured and almost like domesticated for just a weekly use. When we, are, when we come in to the church, we talk about grace, we experience grace, but at the same time, we kind of leave grace on the doorstep as we leave the church and don't allow it to move in our daily lives. And the grace of God is capable of reaching across every culture, every gender, and every generation. But for some reason in the 21st century church, it's been reduced to simply mean forgiveness for everyone. And that is a good news. That is the center of the gospel. But there is so much more in our lives. One of the ways we know this is that people use grace to excuse various sins in their lives. How many people hear this today? God made me this way and he loves me just the way I am. Anybody hear that? God has made me this, and there he loves me just the way I am. And most people are comfortable with that statement, because what it really is, is a get-out-of-jail-free card, isn't it? It's an excuse to live our lives the way we want, instead of the way God wants to transform us to live. And this idea that, that God made you that way and likes you just the way you are, is a blatant lie of the enemy. The Bible teaches us truth, a truth that is opposite of the worldly wisdom that, that God that is tossed around today. And that wisdom is this. The truth of the Bible says that God loves you too much to let you stay the way you are. Last week we learned from Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14, that first his grace, his grace saves, and then it teaches. You see, most of us are okay with receiving forgiveness, aren't we? We want that get-out-of-jail-free card. We want that free pass into heaven that Jesus gives us. We revel in the love and forgiveness and the grace of God that was seen at Jesus' cross. But too often we stop there. We limit grace in our lives. Richard Foster is an author, a man who's spent his entire adult life encouraging Christians to grow in the grace of God. He points out that the message of grace is something more than 
merely a means of forgiveness. Foster says in most pulpits, there's a disconnect between the good news of Jesus' sacrifice and our calling to become the light of the world. Having been saved by grace, these people often become paralyzed by it. And that's why the title of today's message is Paralyzed by Grace. It's talking about remaining stuck at the notion that God's grace is only another way to describe forgiveness. We limit it just at forgiveness, but we need to discover that there is grace also for everyday living. There's grace for our relationships. There's grace for our ministry to others. In the New Testament alone, grace is tied together with other vitally important truths. It means that these two things just tie together. Things like grace and truth are tied together in Scripture. Grace and power are tied together in Scripture. Grace and spiritual giftings are tied together in Scripture. Grace and thanksgiving are tied together in Scripture. Grace and generosity, grace and provision, grace and suffering, grace and destiny. And that's just a short list of the things that grace is tied to in Scripture. If our view of grace is limited to only receiving forgiveness, Jesus cannot be our model of how to receive grace, of how to live in grace, and how to depend on grace. Because Jesus didn't conform to the things of this world, he showed us a different way to live, by grace. If you've been around church culture a while, you've heard that grace has been defined of not getting what we deserve. Grace has also been defined most frequently as God's unmerited favor. Or, if you grew up in Sunday school or children's church, you learn the acronym that grace stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. All of that is true. All of that are wonderful truths that we see in the Bible. But they only tell one part of the truth. And if we leave them at one part of the truth, these partial truths can actually harm our spiritual formation. You see, God's grace is a rope that he has given us to lower it down while we were in the slimy pit of sin. But it also gives us a hose to wash that sin and that slime off of us once we're out of the hole. You see, grace wants us out of the pit, and it also wants to give us a way to clean up our lives. How many of you have heard the following statements in the church? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's not, there's some truth to that. Or there is nothing good inside me. I'll always be a sinner because that's what I always do. Some people have sung that same song for 40 years in their lives. Some people have believed that same thing for their entire lives. And when they agree with a sin diagnosis, they apparently thought it described a permanent condition. But that's not true for those who follow Christ. I know a guy, he's a very dedicated follower of Jesus, passionate in his devotions, passionate in his ministry, but he would always end a prayer like this. He'd say, God, forgive me for the many ways that I have failed you. Forgive me for the many ways I'm going to fail you in the future. And forgive me, please allow your mercy to flow into my life for all the evil that I know I'm going to do in my life eventually. 
And it doesn't matter if he was blessing the food before a meal or, or anything else that he was praying for. He would always end it like this. And as I said, he's a really sincere guy. But I wonder if Jesus ever gets tired of hearing that. You see, no friendship on earth could ever survive if one friend or your spouse or any other relationship that you have, if one of the people would always say, I'm no good for you. I, I, I absolutely stink to be around. I don't know why, why you're my friend. I don't know what benefit it is for me to even hang around you. I mean, what kind of relationship in our lives would survive that constant negative affirmation? I'd like to suggest to you that people who live that way, they live in Old Testament understandings of relationship and an Old Testament understanding of grace. I mean, picture this scene for a moment. Let's say, you know, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your loved one, the person you're dating, your child, whoever it is. You're sitting there and you're in nature maybe and the sun is shining and, and you're just looking at this person in love and you look at them and say, I am such a filthy, rotten person, why do you love me? That's kind of this, this attitude that's being put forth by so many people who live with this idea that you're only a sinner saved by grace. So how does grace apply to our everyday life in a manner that we are conscious of its supply and we know how to use it? Well, the book of Hebrew discusses the practice of forgiveness before Jesus came. This is how people lived before Jesus came. In Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 3, it says that the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer be felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Now notice that last phrase. The people of the Old Testament experienced an annual reminder of their sins. Those Christians I described earlier remind me or remind themselves of their sin every time they pray. The unspoken message is that they are powerless against sin before they came to Jesus and the grace Jesus gives us is apparently is powerless against their sin even after they get saved. That's not what, how Jesus wants us to live. Dallas Willard referred to this as a miserable sinner theology. Simply put, if we are told often enough that we are miserable sinners, those who are unable to overcome our shortcomings in God's eyes, Sooner or later, we'll begin to see ourselves in that light, even after we've turned to Christ. That's what being paralyzed by grace means. It's paralyzed, really, by a misunderstanding of the completeness of God's grace for us. It's not just a problem with our understanding of grace. It's also a misunderstanding of Jesus. A misunderstanding of his message is what everything that his sacrifice meant, what his kingdom is supposed to mean in our lives, and what his mission for us is. To see the work of Jesus as nothing but an endless suffering for sin is to consign him to Old Testament priesthood. 
and not the New Testament Savior that He is. Because surely Jesus' priesthood is the greater priesthood. It's the one that is capable of altering us to our very core and changing who we are on the inside. You see, I'm grateful that Jesus paid the price for my sin. Eternally grateful. But we should also be grateful for his resurrection empowerment, which is capable of changing us from the inside out. So perhaps this morning we can usher Jesus out of the Old Testament priesthood in our minds. Perhaps we can see him as the master teacher, the master empower, and the loving changer of our lives. You see, that's the full work of grace. Grace not only wipes away sin, grace teaches us to avoid sin. You see, there's a cure for our sin, not just a treatment. Our challenge is how we see Jesus, and for many of us, he's only a treatment. And when we limit the work of Jesus to nothing but forgiveness, we lose sight of the possibilities of experiencing the new kind of life that he wants for us in the here and now. And that would be a shame, because we're living underneath what Jesus saved us for. Grace's cure really works, not only in this life, but in the, in the next life. Let me share for you an illustrative story so you can see this a little bit more clearly. There were once two high school students. Each one of them received scholarships to Harvard. Now, if you're a college kid, Harvard is probably one of your target places you want to go. If you can get a full-ride scholarship to Harvard, you're set. And both of these students received exactly that. Full-ride scholarships, every possible expense paid. They weren't going to have to work in a cafeteria. They weren't going to have to work a part-time job. Their parents weren't going to have to give them any money. Everything was going to be paid for. Both of them were very smart. They had worked hard, and they both felt a little intimidated by the reputation of this great college. And each of them thought, I don't deserve to be here. The first student studied hard, day and night. She gave it all that she had. The other student began to enjoy the thrill of college life. He went to every party. He went out to the big city to enjoy the big city and the freedom of being on his own for his first day in his life. By midterm, the first student was still working hard. She initially felt buried underneath the course load that she had, but she kept working it and working it and working it, giving it all of her effort. And she took her C average and pushed it up to a B average. And eventually, as she grew more and more confident and more and more used to college life, she was able to push herself up into an A average. The other student was failing every class and placed in academic probation. By the end of the semester, the first student earned her way into the dean's list. Top students in the school. The second one had flunked out of Harvard. Which of these students laid hold of the opportunity that had been given to them? The first student, right? The second student was only a subject of gossip in his old town, and how could he throw away such an opportunity like that? Now imagine for a moment that the grace of God was like that full-ride scholarship to Harvard. 
It's beyond expectation. Every expense paid. A life-changing opportunity. Anyone watching these two students would conclude that the students who flunked out had thrown away a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. That scholarship to Harvard was the gift of grace, but the truth is that the work was just beginning. You see, God's grace is something like this parable. He does for us what we could not possibly do for ourselves. Get us into the front door of the exclusive eternity that God reserves for those who love him. What's beyond our reach is joyfully paid for us by Jesus Christ, but the work is still is just beginning. When we assign grace to only forgiveness, we become like that separate second student at Harvard. We squander the possibilities of a new birth in Christ. Remember how we talk about grace as being a rope that is thrown to us in life to pull us out of the slimy pit? Grace is indeed like that, but grace is also that hose that cleans us up, and then it forms a fence around that pit to keep us from falling back into it. You see, grace is protective in that it helps us work out our salvation. Some people might object to the close association between that word grace and the word work. You, may ask, you might ask, well, grace comes with no strings attached, doesn't it? We should be clear about this. No effort on our part could win God's pardon. That's true enough, but it's not the entire story. It's demonstrated to us through the life of the Apostle Paul. In the earliest days of his conversion to Christ, he knew immediately that Jesus had laid a hold of him for a purpose. Paul was filled with gratitude for God's grace and forgiveness, and he was eager to get on with God's work. He immediately began to call himself God's fellow worker. He immediately started to see himself as an apostle. He was considered um, by the church of Corinth to be their apostle, and he worked in God's field there. And he considered himself privileged to join the workforce. But remember who and what Paul was to the early church. Before Jesus got a hold of Paul, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. He was the imprisoner and executioner of Christians. He was the Sadducees and the Pharisees' hitman. When Saul came into town, the Christians hid in the, in the closet. And Paul was well aware that amongst people he had no moral standing. He was like one of these people that, that lives their lives away from Christ, away from God, even standing against everything of God, and suddenly gets saved that everybody doesn't want to believe it. And the Christians then didn't want to believe it. After all, he had persecuted the Christians for years. But thank goodness, Paul was also aware that his qualifications were not the issue. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.10, a verse that means a great deal to me, because I really identify with Paul and his words here. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Grace was working something out in Paul, because Paul allowed God's grace in his life. 
And to many of us, it's a strange combination of words that Paul puts together here. He uses grace and worked harder in all in one sentence. He attaches work with grace. And what's true for Paul is also true for us. When we were born into God's family, we're born into a family business. Many of us have worked as farmers, and you've kind of inherited the farm and family and family. You've, you were born into that family business. It's the same kind of thing in the kingdom of God. When you are born again into God's kingdom, you are born into his family's business. God's grace doesn't just wipe away our sin. God's grace asks us to join in the work of the kingdom. You see, the apostle Paul understood this side of grace as well. This famous apostle is the same one who described his life's mission like this. He said his life's mission was one of great endurance. It was great endurance in troubles and hardships and distresses, in beatings and imprisonment and riots and hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, all in order to share what he himself had been given. God's grace worked in him. Paul had no problem seeing the connection between grace and effort. Richard Foster helps us to understand the ongoing work of grace. When he says that grace saves us from life without God, even more, it empowers us for a life with God. The grace we receive at the new birth is just the introduction. As students of Jesus, we need grace for growth as well. Grace opens up the startling uh, uh, possibility that we don't have to be a yo-yo between sin and forgiveness. You see people live their lives like this. Uh, they, they're doing great, they sin, and then they think they're hopeless, and then they start climbing the ladder again, they sin, and they fall down into the depths of depression, and their whole spiritual life just goes like this. That's not what grace is intended for us to do. Grace shows us the destiny that we have in Christ. And what is this deeper side of grace? The deeper side of grace is a discovery that our new birth should be followed by growth into the image of Christ. The deep side of grace is that we begin to join the family business. We also begin to take on the family likeness. Another way to think of it, Co-laboring with Christ is a very activity that begins to grow the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And as we joyfully work side by side with Jesus, we begin to become conformed into his image. Romans 8.29 tells us that our destiny not only will allow us to live with him forever, but that Jesus wants us to be changed into his likeness. to the scripture we talked about earlier this morning of getting into, and that is Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Jesus tells us, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This image was very common in his day, maybe not so much in our day, unless you, you're driving past an Amish farm, where you see like a yoke as a large collar 
that a horse or a bull or, or a steer would wear. And they would attach that to the plow and they would do most of the work in plowing. Grace calls us to take up Jesus' yoke. You see, two animals could be yoked together and they would have to be about the same size. But Jesus, in his case, is saying, I'm going to carry it for you. All you have to do is walk beside me. Grace is God putting his strength at our disposal. I read an article this week that really shows what we're talking about here. And one of the greatest modern examples that I've read about of grace in action is something called Triple X Church. Now the name itself should make us like, makes you want to take a step back. Okay, Pastor John's about to go crazy again. But, but let me read what this church is about. This church is located in Pasadena near the heart of Hollywood where most of the pornography in the United States is produced. This church was founded to reach people involved in the pornographic and sex trade industry. And they have led dozens, if not hundreds, to people from that business into a new life in Jesus through their outreaches. They even attend their award ceremony and win people to Christ. One woman that was saved from this life had this testimonial. And I'll tell you what, when I first read this, I was reduced to tears. This woman writes, in December of 2012, I was a broken-hearted, depressed, addicted to drugs, and a rising, one of the biggest stars in the adult film industry. And she said, I was desperate for help. I knew the life that I was living wasn't designed for me, because if it was, why would I want to end it so badly? I knew there had to be something greater out there for me, but I just didn't know what. I am so grateful that I was led into this church, that there was something greater out there for me. I had finally come to the end of myself, and in doing so, I encountered my Savior. Without telling my agent, my co-workers, or my family, or the hundreds of thousands of fans that were following me, I made the radical decision to quit the porn industry once and for all. She continues and says, I started going to church. Yes, in the early days, I was showing up high on drugs. But I didn't let that stop me. I was so hungry for God that I found myself at church every day it was open, five days a week. I also sought him every single morning. I got down on my knees to worship him. I prayed. I read my Bible. Fasting also became part of my life. And by the end of 2013, God had set me free from my addiction to drugs. For the first time in seven years of using, I didn't get dope sick. I mean, she didn't have withdrawal coming off of drugs. God truly performed a miracle for me. God also began to gracefully convict me. Because of God's graceful convictions, I decided to stop dating for more than for one year because men were my weakness and I didn't need that distraction. She said, I needed to grow in God and finally become all he designed me to be. I also decided to stop having sex until marriage. And this testimony continues for five pages, and don't worry, I'm not going to read them all. 
but it's five pages describing God's incredible grace working in the life of this woman to change her from a hardened, drug-abusing addict that was using her, her body to make money, being followed by hundreds of thousands of men who were waiting for her next video, and putting that all aside because of God's grace and forgiveness in her life, a life that many would have considered to be a lost cause. And by the way, this woman is now the senior pastor's wife. She has her own incredible, effective ministry in saving others from this lifestyle. You see, that's the whole work of grace in action. I would ask for you today, don't be paralyzed by only expecting grace for forgiveness. But let God release his grace and change every fiber of your being into an accurate and loving representation of Jesus. Let's all stand. I'm going to lead us in a prayer and then we're going to finish our service with just one worship song this morning. It talks about God's reckless love. Father God, I ask, Father, that if any of us are trapped in that cycle of only knowing your grace for forgiveness, that you would break that cycle right now in Jesus' name. That the same grace that that flows from the cross of Christ is the same grace that wants to make a difference in our lives. A same grace that wants to break the cycle of sin and forgiveness, of sin and forgiveness, and make us into a being that no longer even desires those sins. A, a person that, that no longer desires to do those things which aren't pleasing to you. and put us on a new path in life. So, Father God, I just ask, Lord, that as we close in, in worship of you, that your grace would be released throughout our congregation to break off those things that the enemy has put into our lives that are not pleasing to you. Those things that keep us on that endless roller coaster of of sinning, forgiveness, sinning, forgiveness, sinning, forgiveness, and just take it away so that we know what it is to have victory in Jesus. Let us know that through your reckless love this morning, Lord.